Amanda Simpson is a true badass on so many levels. A former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Operational Energy at the U.S. Department of Defense. She was a systems test pilot for Hughes Aircraft and Raytheon, was involved in working on all kinds of weapons platforms. She has over 3,000 hours in over 60 types and makes and models of aircraft and has worked at the Pentagon. Oh, and in 2010, Amanda Simpson became the first openly transgender woman political appointee of any presidential administration. And that's just scratching the surface. Amanda, welcome to the Cultural Scavenger. It's hard for me to wrap my arms around all the stuff that you've done. And I just hit the Cliff Notes version of your career in my intro, so fill in some of the blanks for me, including now you're at Airbus. Um, yeah, so, you know, after I left the, the Pentagon uh, four and a half years ago, I, I thought I might try retiring. Uh, I was a ski bump for about two months out in Colorado. Uh, came back home and just put, got bored out of my mind. So re-entered the, the workforce, uh, private sector again, and landed this opportunity at Airbus. And I coordinate all the research, uh, technology, innovation, activities. Well, the America, basically the Western Hemisphere. So some really interesting stuff going on. You know, what's going to be the future of airliners? What's going to be the future of you know, helicopters and spacecraft and military systems. Somehow that all trickles through me. So Wow. Well, you left the Obama administration along with every other functioning adult when uh, Trump came in. And so... Yeah, yeah, I was shown the door. Yep. Well, you know... It's, what a, what it's, one, of the, it's, it's one of these, quote, time-honored traditions that everyone who was an appointee submits their re- letter of resignation. And... Surprisingly, they were all accepted. So, yeah, it's a shock. So, working at Airbus, you're flying all over the world, or if you're not, then you're doing, as you said earlier before we started recording, that uh, you spend the day in front of a computer doing Zoom meetings. What do you do, Amanda? <laughs> well, it's it is interesting because in the last month, I have started traveling again. I'm a little bit concerned about, you know, the variants of COVID and whether that might impact it. But I've been to our sites in Wichita and Mobile, was out in France uh, two weeks ago, coordinating with our new head of technology and our new head of engineering. Uh, And then, of course, last week I was at the EAA AirVenture, the big fly-in in in Oshkosh, where they had over 600,000 people. Wow. Thousand aircraft flew in to make it the busiest airport in the world. One week a year, except for last year. Busiest airport in the world. It's, in Oshkosh, uh, Wisconsin. In little Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Where I saw you on Facebook, you and, and your partner, Jennifer, on the Goodyear blimp. We scored a Goodyear blimp ride. That, um, was, that, was, that made all of us jealous. Um, yeah, it, well, it's something I've, you know, I lived, used to live in Southern California and would drive by the Carson headquarters for Goodyear air, airship operations, right at the intersection of uh, the 405 and the 110. And you'd watch the blimp launch and whatever, you know, the freeway would either come to a stop or people would run into each other because it's always so interesting. And I always thought, I want to, I want to get a ride in the, 
in the Goodyear blimp. You know, and, and since then I've flown, you know, airplanes and helicopters, you know, land planes and multi-engine planes and seaplanes, and I've gotten a ride in a balloon and I've flown gliders. I've I've never been in, a, in an airship, so it was it was really neat. It's it seats like um like ten or twelve mm-hmm. passengers, massive windows. The view is extraordinary, and you don't even feel like you're moving because it kind of just lifts off. It's quiet as all heck. This new one, because the engines are mounted up on the sides of the uh, dirigible. But, uh, the old models used to be mounted right on the gondola, so they were right there. This one's, you know, really quiet. And we just went back and forth along the flight line at the at the air show, and actually watched part of the air show from 500 feet in the air. Oh which wow. Was- that's, which was pretty cool when that, you know an F-18 goes screaming by just below the speed of sound and they're setting off explosions on the ground. You can feel the vibrations um kind of echoing through the gas bag of uh, of the, the airship. Every once in a while the the whole world to kind of you know tilts forward or back because we hit a you know a little gust of wind, but just kind of hang there in the sky. It's I guess the only analogy that I could think of after what you've done, after all the the Again, I use the term badass because it is all the aircraft that you've flown that haul ass. <laughs> it must be like in my world going from big whitewater kayak to doing a flat water float. Yeah, I mean, it was it was indeed that calm. We most of the windows were open. You could put your hand out. <laughs> you barely felt a breeze. That's funny. <laughs> You flew a, T, a T-39 Sabre Liner and a Douglas A-3 Sky Warrior in support of Missile Seeker technology. And I re- remember you telling me the story when we first met about how, wasn't that when they strapped something on the nose of these aircraft and you had to fly literally below sea level? The concept was that, you know, you can build a, you know, a missile and missiles have gotten smarter, you know, since you know, quote, dumb bombs that were just, you know, drop gravity. And not only do they follow laser sensors and find a target, but oftentimes now we have imaging ones that actually look at the scene to try to determine what is the actual target so that it hits it properly. And and you can, you can design them and you can test them in the lab and you can put up all sorts of simulations, but you really need to take them out in the real world. And what you'd like to do is build a full-up missile and launch the thing and see if it works. You get one data point and it costs millions and millions of dollars. So short of that, you put all that hardware minus, you know, things like rocket motors. Yeah. You know, you strap that on the belly of an airplane or you stick it out the nose or, or something like that. And then we would go fly the trajectory uh, to simulate what that missile would do. And so, yeah, T-39 Sabre liner was a, Probably a, the first real business jet. It predates the Lear. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we had serial number three, so it was really, really old. And uh, for one one test, you kind of uh, mentioned we had to collect data for the Navy. And we had a probe sticking out the nose of the plane. And we had to be 50 feet over water. And we did a lot of collection out over the ocean and different types of what sea states, how rough and you know how many ripples. That, but we needed sea state like zero, like glassy water, which you, you referred to earlier. 
And the only place we could find large expanses like that was the Salton Sea, which is nearly 200 feet below sea level. And so we're, since we're flying 50 feet above it, you know, below sea level in a, in a jet aircraft and we go up and down and, you know, sea state zero eventually became sea state one because we were causing ripples from our, from our jet wake. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's what it was. We'd go uh, over to Palm Springs, put some more fuel in and go back and do that. And I did that uh, three times a week for about uh, two or two or three weeks, I think. So lots of time below sea level. But and, and there probably aren't too many people that have flown below sea level before, I take it. Yeah. You know, I know that the, um, I actually flew in a Cessna once that I had rented out of Las Vegas that had a little plaque, you know, that had set the world's record for the longest continuous flight below sea level. They had gone over to uh, Furnace Creek in Death Valley, fueled up, take off, and then circled uh, pretty much around the airport below sea level without ever going above it for like three or four hours. Now that sounds kind of boring. What I did was a lot more exciting. It was up and down and up and down, but a lot of time below sea level. And we actually had um, one of our fuel pumps fail. And so we aborted the mission, flew the plane back to our base, which was in Van Nuys, California. And I had to write up the, you know, the maintenance report and they sent the part back to the manufacturer. And the manufacturer for that pump said, I'm sorry, but it's, you were operating it outside of specifications. The aircraft is certified from sea level to 50,000 feet. And since you were below sea level, it's not covered by a warranty. The board, they voided the warranty. Oh my God. That's, that's I, th- I think, I think they honored it, but <laughs> never saw. And they go, are you sure it was at 120 feet? That just doesn't make any sense. And we're like, yeah, yeah it does. So that's, that's funny. Given the roles that you have been involved in how much would you say that you've done is classified any of the stuff that is classified that you know that you can't share with me or the audience does it scare the shit out of you and or should it scare the shit out of me well no it should scare the shit out of our adversaries Um, perfect answer yeah, some of the stuff is definitely still classified. Some of it is absolutely now deployed, you know, as part of deployed weapon systems. And mm-hmm. yeah, we've made some, you know, we talk about smart bombs. These were like brilliant missiles that effectively kind of make the decisions for themselves as part of the automation. It's a, it's a little bit, you know, pushing the, the boundaries of, you know, what is the, you know, the rules of engagement. Yeah, it's uh, a, a lot of AI, I, I would guess, right? A lot a lot of AI. Well, you know, it's not so much, you know, AI is a general term. This was yeah. machine learning, you know, looking at lots and lots of data, coming up with algorithms to make the appropriate decisions uh, based on either a vision system or infrared lasers, all sorts of uh, different sensors. But, you know, the concept was if we ever get into a real shooting match with a peer adversary, we want to be able to... Um, have our crews be able to perform their mission and come home. You know, you want to be able to have the amount, the appropriate amount of standoff to, to get the weapon in to make it work. But yeah, I mean, there were certainly sometimes some complete operations that I did that I really will never be able to talk about. Um, I mean, the A3, uh, most people even know what an A3 is. Yeah, it's the largest bomber that the Navy ever operated on. 
carriers. It was uh, initially designed to be um, a nuclear-capable bomber until the Navy finally realized that launching and recovering nuclear weapons on an aircraft carrier deck was probably not a good idea. Not a good idea, yeah. Uh, but so I never flew one, flew one off a carrier, but um, a lot of work on land uh, for an aircraft that wasn't designed really to be recovered on land. It had a huge drag chute when you landed, narrow gear, bad brakes, all that sort of stuff. That was a Vietnam era aircraft too, wasn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. Flew in Vietnam. Um, it was subsonic because uh, during the war when they would go in and do bombing runs, after the bombs were dropped, the A-4s, Skyhawks, that were escorting them would punch it up to about 1.1, and they looked back, and the A-3s were still with them. Um, so there may be a little issue on how accurate the airspeed indicator is as you, as you approach or pass Mach 1, but the aircraft seemed to fly well. Um, but then I've flown like big things, like multi-engine airliners, um, and I've taken those down to a couple hundred feet. What was the... the- the aircraft that was the most fun. If you could, if you could pick your favorite, which one was it that you went? Oh, I could fly this every day. Yeah, and, and that goes back to the Saber Liner because the Saber Liner was based upon the um, Saber Jet, mm-hmm. the, you know, the famous F eighty six. That was uh, yeah, that was Korean War, right? Right. So the Saber Liner had the same wings as the Saber Jet, except you know you take off the small fuselage and put a little. You know, a little business jet carried um, like six people and uh, didn't have quite the thrust of a, of a military jet. But um, for those who remember or are familiar with R.A. Bob Hoover, who used to do air shows, uh, he had three aircraft that he would do his air shows and he would have a, um, a P-51 Mustang. It was yellow. He called it Old Yeller. He had a Rockwell uh, Shrike Commander which was a piston-engine business aircraft, and he would do a routine where he'd actually shut down both engines and you could see the propellers, and he'd still do the aerobatic routine, do some Lord. and would land and eventually and taxi right to the to his spot without ever turning on the engines. And the third aircraft was a Sabreliner, also a North American rock bomb. Uh, it was white with green lettering. And he did all sorts of aerobatics. And so when I got uh, my type rating in the Saberliner uh, back in St. Louis, they had signs, you know, we do not recommend that anyone try any of the maneuvers that, you know, Hooper does. This is not an aerobatic aircraft. Now, that being said, ours was experimental. We had an experimental rating. We moved it out of the transport category because all the modifications we had done on it. So, you know... Did I do some things in that aircraft? Um, Probably. We're not really going to talk about that. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Speaking of the P-51, were you ever able to fly one? I have not. I have not. Um, That would be a bucket list thing for me. There are a couple of two-seaters out there, and it's it's tempting. It's also expensive. Yeah. Um, But I have a wonderful story about a P-51. My flight instructor... Uh, her name was Iris Cummings Critchell, was one of the WASPs uh, in World War II. Actually, she predated the WASPs. She was in something called the WASPs mm-hmm. and the Woman's Auxiliary Flying Service. And she flew P-51s and P-38s and P-60s. You know, 
she was one of the few women that flew the bombers, the fighters, the transport aircraft. She flew most everything. She's 100 years old now. She's also the yeah. oldest survivor of the 1936 Olympic team, where she was uh, a swimmer. Wow. An amazing woman. But at, I think at 96, one of the alums uh, from my college, where, where I learned to fly, uh, bought her a ride in a front seat of a P-51 with an instructor. And she got in the plane and they just turned over the controls to her at 96. And she's doing, you know, eight point precision, precision rolls. She's doing all the maneuvers. And it was like she had never gotten out of the plane. She remembered all the power settings, the whole wow. thing. It's like riding a bike, I guess, if you're that if you're that good. Well, while you were an undergraduate. You spent your summers working as a student engineer in the customer service organization on the DC-8, DC-9, DC-10 electrical systems at Douglas Aircraft in Long Beach. Yeah, and back then, when there was um, a Douglas Aircraft in Long Beach. There was a Doug, yeah, Douglas Aircraft, the DC-10. And the DC-3, which was going back to World War II, that, that was the workhorse of World War II. An interesting factoid that the diameter of the DC-3 fuselage was the same as the diameter of the DC-10 number two engine mounted up on the vertical tail. Oh, my God. That's... Isn't that amazing? That is like, amazing. To the inch, they were the same diameter. Did they? Was it just coincidental, or did they design it that way? I don't know. It just, but I, it's just... I don't know the history of it, but that's just the way it worked out. I mean, that's a, that's a great tidbit. So you did that. You were... You also worked on the the Apache target acquisition and design or designation site slash pilot night vision systems. At yeah, Hughes the TAD, they called it the TADS PNBS. Yes. For uh, you the know. AH-64 Apache attack helicopter, which was kind of it, a, well, when I was working there at, at Hughes helicopter, it was just in the prototype stage. You're an undergrad a student engineer, you must have been one hell of an engineer. So, so when when did you decide? Obviously, at that point, you decided this is what I want to do. When did you decide that that this was the career choice for you? It was between you know high school and college that we had a meeting for people going into school. Harvey Mudd College, very small school dedicated towards science and engineering. Uh, at the time, there was only 400 students in the whole college. And so we had a meeting in Huntington Beach. And uh, one of the alums of the school was telling me how recently a graduate had been accepted into the astronaut program for the space shuttle. Of course, this is years before the space shuttle even flew. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So it's actually possible to become an, an astronaut. astronaut. Wow. You know, I remember, as you, you know, the Mercury, but I remember Gemini and Apollo, and it's like every kid wanted to be an astronaut. So I thought, wow, I'll follow Pinky's path, uh, and thus I can become an astronaut. And he learned to fly at Harvey Mudd. I'll do that. He was a physicist. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I love physics. I'll do that. So I kind of committed myself. You know, certainly my path ended up being very different than Pinky's. But and by the way, Pinky's a good friend. Uh, we, you know, I haven't seen him in a couple of years, but you know, it just worked out that way. And and I fell in love with aviation. And I was fortunate enough to be one of uh, four students that were accepted into that flight program. Um, I was one of two sophomores 
learned from Iris. And by the time I graduated, I, I had a, I was a flight instructor and a commercial license, um, you know, instrument rating and, uh, and tried to figure out how to make that part of my career. As I'm listening to you, it's a, kind of a, the latter day version of Chuck Yeager. You know, you did all that stuff, but you, you didn't become an astronaut. Did you apply or did you, is, was that something that you? I did. I pursued it probably in the late nineties. I started when they opened it up again. Mm-hmm. And actually I got, I think I have a drawer over here. It's full of all my applications and eventually the rejection letter in 2003, I think, or four, I finally got up enough in the program that they started, you know, they evaluated me on my merits and things. And it got to the physical examination and they determined that because I was transgender, I must be psychologically unstable. Now they never actually put that in writing. They just moved me around to different psychologists and psychiatrists for evaluation. But the letter says I would have difficulty urinating in microgravity, (laughs) which I find humorous. And I actually shared that letter with Sally Ride. And she told me that they had told her the same thing when she had applied to be an astronaut because they just didn't really want women in the program. This is a perfect segue, which, you know, thankfully my guests on the podcast typically do. They will lead me right to the next question before I ask it. I've always been just resentful of the comments from people, and I'm sure you've heard them too, that's like, well, you know, being gay or or transgender, that's a choice, which is just complete bullshit. It's not a choice. It's not a choice. The the only choice that I had was to recognize who I was and to act upon. Um, I mean, I had a point in my life where there was a question of whether I would continue at all. Yeah. Why would anybody want to go through what you've gone through? Why would anybody choose that? No one, no one, no one would want to, no one would want to choose that. It's not like there was some epiphany that one morning I woke up and went, Oh, I think I should change my gender. Oh, no, I mean, this goes back to, you know, my earliest memories of not fitting in with the groups that I was assigned to. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And then, you know, really wasn't until the advent of the internet that I was able to find that there were other, other people. people. Yeah. How was it emotionally for you going through the, the whole process? I mean, once you made the decision, did you ever say, wait a minute, I can't do this? Oh my God. It's a, it's a devastating process. Not, not so much for the physical uh, process, but the emotional toll and the, and, and the social toll it takes with, with friends and family who, you know, like you kind of allude, don't understand. And, you know, some came along and said, you're, you know, you're the same person yeah. and love you and we're going to embrace you. And others were like, I don't understand. I don't want you in my life anymore. That's um, just, yeah. I, that's, son, yeah. Yeah. That would be the part that would be the most devastating is like, What's the matter with you? That's the attitude and the mentality that makes me crazy. Yeah, that makes a lot of people crazy. And what you know, what we're seeing today, yeah, people using that, 
fear that, you know, they're stoking it and using it for political gain, mm-hmm. which actually is just infuriating because it's putting people's lives in jeopardy to make some political power move. It's just horrible. People in your immediate family, did they shun you? Did most say, no, you are the same person. We love you. I mean, how did that go? Well, you know, I, I think most of my family came along. My father was, I will love you, but you'll always be my son uh, kind of speech. But, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago, I think he's moved past that. And, you know, we always think that, you know, there are things that we can put people in a box and, you know, we, we put labels on them. And with those labels or in that box, we bring all these notions that we have in our head. And it's easy to be prejudiced against a concept, but oftentimes not so easy to be against a person. And yeah. someone that you've known and that after you, and I can't say after you go through the process, because it's always an ongoing process. And there's, um, but, you you know, I'm, I'm still the same person. Actually, maybe I'm a little bit better than, <laughs> than I was 20 some odd years ago. When sure, I, you're in a better, better place yeah. emotionally, I think. Exactly. So, yeah. You were an inspiration. First of all, you look terrific. I mean, you really just look great. And you're a badass. And I love to have badass. I will tell you a story, a little story that happened this week. We're at a dinner. Um, a couple of uh, my, my, my boss, the CEO of Airbus Americas, and a couple of other employees. And somehow during the conversation, it came out that we were, my boss and I were about the same age, um, in our sixties. And the, the, the gal across from me goes, Oh my gosh, you look great. And she's looking at me and, <laughs> and my boss is like, uh, hello. <laughs> what about me? <laughs> yeah. What about me? Oh, and then watched her backpedal that, no, no, uh, you look fine, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> But, 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 but. Yeah, I was, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of that is, you know, 20 plus years being happy with myself, embracing my my true self and my whole self, living very, very authentically. I, you know, hopefully that's brought a little joy, not only, you know, bringing that out into my face and, and whatever, but also the people around me. I, I think it's very evident. When I met you, that was the joy and the just the happiness and and who you are and what you were doing. It was just it was very evident. So I suspect that that probably has a lot to do with it. Like me, you ran for the state house. I ran in in Virginia. You ran in Arizona. I didn't know at the time when I ran that the numbers weren't really favorable for me. I was in a pretty red district. So how how did it go for you? Well, I ran, uh, like I said, in Arizona in t- 2004. Uh, I joked that uh, John Kerry's coattails weren't quite long enough. Of course, they weren't even long enough for him. So that was uh, <laughs> another issue. I told him that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I won the I won the primary in in my district. Um, it was, but you know, the numbers were slightly against me. It was uh, 23% registered Democrats, 38% registered Republicans, the rest, you know, not choosing a party. Which is not a good sign. 
<laughs> yeah, at the time, uh, that, that district, and I think Arizona's still that way, every district elects one senator and two representatives. So, you know, you get to vote for two. I got like 30, a little over 31,000 votes, uh, which was pretty good. Yeah, but it was respectable. Enough, you know, the two Republicans won, and it was a little disappointing. I was outspent by my opponents, uh, nine to one. I, I wasn't really a very good fundraiser. The Democratic Party didn't believe uh, that I could do well because, you know, first transgender candidate in a statewide race, you know, in a Republican-leaning district. Right. But I stayed involved with the party and worked uh, hard to help promote opportunities. And then the next year, we won that seat. Wow. But two years later, we won that seat. So, and and while I didn't run, I advised and helped the candidates mm-hmm. kind of became a, a mover and shaker up there in Northwest Tucson to the extent that I think that's why my name kind of bubbled up to the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how far the democratic party has come because I used to joke when I ran in 2007, I used to tell people that in Virginia, the, the Republicans are Republicans and the Democrats are Republicans. You know, there was just really not a, dimes worth of difference between them and my issue, you know, the gun issue, Democrats at that point in time, they wanted no part of it. You know, you'd ask them, well, what do you think about the gun issue? No, we, we well, let's talk about education. We, we, so I can certainly understand. It's like, well, what about a transgender woman running? Oh, no, 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 no. We've come a long way as a party. Well, we've just, come a long way as a, as a nation. I mean, in yeah. Or Dennis Miller made fun of me on his show. Dennis uh, Miller did? You know, then that's yeah. a thing. I, I used to love Dennis Miller, and then I realized what an asshole he is. Yeah, but but then in, in 2009, when it was announced that he got the appointment with the Obama administration, well, then, you know, that was a big deal. And yeah. every, you know, uh, Letterman did a horrible spot on me. Um, Conan did... I think he got three nights of jokes out of me. Leno did. Really? You know, it made the evening news. I guess they thought it was good for a laugh. I mean, well, I'll tell you that the thing that really disturbed me about the Letterman joke was he put other people at risk because he made fun of me in a way that I guess his sidekick kind of insinuated that he had gone out with me and that he was now, now finding out that I was transgender and that made him physically ill and letterman stood on stage and laughed for like 27 seconds or something like that which is an eternity yeah on television just stood there and laughed and not so much for me but that the whole issue of that if you happen to have been with a transgender person in a physical loving way would be repulsive puts people's lives at risk sure so and that's what upset me and never apologized to me or to the community Uh, a couple years later when Chaz Bono was on the show he made some comment about well I guess I had made some comments that disturbed some people in the past that was his only acknowledgement of it and I just now think he looks like an ugly old man with that beard but that's well he he does he looks like uh he's trying to Audition for ZZ Top. Well, Amanda, you are a brave woman. To be as brave as you are, you have to be a badass. And and with all the, the your body of work, I, I think it's just astounding. So 
I... Well, Andy, girls, girls just want to have fun. <laughs> Perfect. I will leave it with that. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Mary Ann Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening.